You're listening to the On the Go with VAO News podcast for the week ending February 19th, 2016. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is our weekly recap of the top headlines from our daily acquisition news. Thank you for joining us today. I am Bill Olfer, VAO content developer and senior news writer. And I'm Dara Curran, content developer and fellow news writer. In its fiscal year 2017 budget submission, the White House proposed a $3.1 billion IT modernization fund that would help agencies move away from outdated and insecure legacy systems. This week, federal CIO Tony Scott gave up some more detail on the idea, saying that OMB would establish the fund, which would be run by GSA. To obtain funding, agencies would be required to pitch their modernization projects to experts governing the fund. Those experts will bring IT acquisition, management, and budgeting experience to the table and will give preference to applications or systems that are outdated or expensive to maintain, that rely on outmoded processes, or ones that pose cybersecurity risks. The board is also more likely to approve projects that take advantage of shared services, cloud solutions, and agile development methods. The board also will consider cross-agency projects and will award funds incrementally as projects reach important milestones. Conversely, agencies that fail to reach milestones will not receive additional funding. Overall, the administration anticipates the fund could yield $12 billion in savings and cost avoidance by modernizing legacy systems. Agencies also will be required to contribute to the fund once a modern system is implemented to ensure the fund's long-term health. In its fiscal 2017 budget request, the Department of Homeland Security is proposing a new appropriation structure to eliminate component stovepipes as part of its Unity of Effort initiative. DHS has issued a budget in brief overview that outlines the four standard categories in which it will request appropriations. Those are operations and support, procurement construction and improvements, research and development, and federal assistance. The new plan also makes line items consistent enterprise-wide, and within each appropriations area, the budget groups individual projects and programs under department mission areas. Using a common budgeting framework should simplify DHS's planning, programming, budgeting, and execution processes. The agency also asked Congress to officially authorize its Joint Requirements Council, which is comprised of component leaders tasked with guiding agency acquisitions to align with overall department and mission goals. The Defense Information Systems Agency has granted its first Level 5 security clearance for cloud services to IBM's Allegheny Ballistics Laboratory in West Virginia. The conditional authority allows IBM to host sensitive but unclassified information on the Department of Defense's unclassified internal network. Defense organizations using the laboratory's services will be able to establish their own dedicated environments, or they can select hybrid cloud solutions. CompuLine International has filed a pre-award bid protest challenging the terms of the solicitation for GSA's EIS telecommunications contract. The vendor filed the protest on February 16th, and GAO expects to make a decision by May 26th. In an amendment to the solicitation on FedBizOps, GSA says it will continue to receive and will evaluate proposals, but it will not make an award decision until GAO issues a decision or dismisses the protest. 
The deadline for proposals for EIS is February 22nd, and barring any delays, such as those that might be caused by a protest, <laughs> GSA expects to award the contract in early 2017, which will support a full agency transition to EIS by mid-2020. Those poor guys, and they've been planning so meticulously for this crossover, but I hope that they have you know, anticipated some of this yeah, in their I'm very timelines. curious to what the what the challenge is that because yeah. they, they did to did so much industry outreach and communication so it's very surprising the office of personnel management office of inspector general is warning that a 1998 measure may make beth Colbert ineligible to serve as acting opm director because president barack obama has also nominated her to serve as opm director In a February 10th letter, OIG noted the Federal Vacancies Reform Act states a vacant agency leader position must be filled by the president appointing a senior employee from the same agency or a Senate-confirmed officer from another agency or having the first assistant to the vacant office assume the role of acting officer. Colbert does not qualify under any of those categories, and furthermore, the statute says an individual may not serve in an acting capacity for a position if the president has nominated that person to the Senate for appointment to that job. This could render any decisions Colbert has made since her November 10th nomination void and potentially subject to court challenge, including establishing the National Background Investigations Bureau, implementing the new Federal Employee Performance Management Plan, and raising incentive caps for critical positions. However, a White House spokesman said the administration made the nomination based on consistent Department of Justice interpretation and guidance that indicates individuals may serve in an acting capacity while their nominations are pending before the Senate. No matter what interpretation is used, Colbert could remain a nominee, of course, but she wouldn't be able to continue to serve as acting director. Additionally, DOJ could still opt to request the Supreme Court review the recent federal appeals court ruling that affirmed this interpretation of the law. OPM also has issued a proposed rule that would amend its regulations to update a number of human resources processes. Of particular interest, OPM is proposing to revise the requirements for agency annual employee surveys by reducing the number of specifically prescribed questions from 45 to 11. The 11 proposed questions would cover areas such as reasonable workloads, management communication, opportunities to improve skills, and recognition for good work. Agencies would have the flexibility to ask additional questions unique to their organization, but would be required to include OPM's 11 questions. Comments on this proposal must be received by April 8, 2016, to be considered in the formation of a final rule. Several Department of Agriculture agencies have published a final rule incorporating OMB guidance for federal grant programs into their regulations. This final rule was effective February 16th and applies to USDA's Office of the Chief Financial Officer, Farm Service Agency, Commodity Credit Corporation, National Institute of Food and Agriculture, Rural Utility Service, Rural Business Cooperative Service, and Rural Housing Service. A proposed rule this week would amend the Federal Acquisition Regulation to provide additional requirements related to the allowability of costs incurred by a contractor in connection with a congressional inquiry or investigation. Section 857 of the Fiscal Year 2015 National Defense Authorization Act disallowed such costs if the contractor was, in essence, ultimately determined to have violated or ignored a federal or state statute or regulation. 
Section 857 applies only to contracts with DOD, NASA, and the Coast Guard, but it is being implemented into the FAR to promote consistency in the accounting systems of federal contractors. The proposed rule would also add conforming language on unallowable costs in two FAR sections. Comments must be submitted by April 18th to be considered in the formation of a final rule. DOD has published a proposed rule that would amend DFARS to improve the effectiveness of independent research and development investments by the defense industrial base that are reimbursed as allowable costs. Specifically, DOD is proposing to revise DFARS 231.205-18, which is entitled Independent Research and Development and Bid and Proposal Costs, to require that proposed new IR&D efforts be communicated to appropriate DOD personnel prior to actually launching them, and on the opposite end of the life cycle, that the results from those investments be shared with appropriate DOD personnel. The intent of the rule is not to have DOD try to prevent or subject such projects to approval, but merely to codify the information sharing aspect of this, so potential DoD customers will be aware of new projects in the pipeline and can also provide industry with some feedback on the relevance of the work they have underway. Comments on the proposed rule are due by April 18th. A couple of weeks ago, we discussed some protest cases where GAO and other agencies and the courts disagreed on the outcomes. You can find those on our January 22nd and January 29th podcasts. In those, we took a look at the separate protest and court case decisions and went back to the statutory language that led to the disagreements. This week, we're going to discuss another case where GAO and the courts disagree on a procurement matter. In this case, GAO denied a protest, and the protester has not yet, to my knowledge, taken the case to courts, but it is an area where GAO's decision brushes up against some previous court opinions in a rather interesting way. And first of all, we should give credit, thank you very much, to procurementplaybook.com, which is a legal blog that follows issues related to federal procurement law. They flagged the GAO decision as something worth following, and we thought it provided an interesting companion case to the protests we talked about before. So we dug into the separate decisions and legal foundation behind them. Yes, it was an interesting case. Uh, As way of background, first, in this case, the agency issued an RFP as a small business set aside and decided that it would be awarded as an LPTA, Low Price Technically Acceptable Award. Mm -hmm. Now, the awardees and the protesters' proposal were eventually found to be reasonably priced and technically acceptable. Um, Of course, this was an LPTA, so the award went to the lowest price offer. And the protester filed a case on several different grounds. Uh, The protester challenged uh, the evaluation and the source selection, uh, the agency's discussion, and all of these grounds were denied uh, by GAO. Now, of interest to us, for this part of the discussion, uh, the protester argued that the awardee's proposal would not comply with FAR 52.219-14, limitations on subcontracting, and therefore it should have been ineligible for award. Now, that clause states that for non-construction services, which was the case here, at least 50% of the cost of contract performance incurred for personnel costs must be performed by employees of the awardee. And FAR 19.508 requires agencies to insert that clause into any solicitation or contract for supplies, services, and construction if any portion of the requirement is to be set aside or reserved for small businesses and if the contract amount is expected to exceed $150,000. This this clause also applies to contracts awarded through 
SBA's 8A program. It's a mandatory clause. Hmm. Um, now, the protest is not in, um, does not include the offeror's proposals, but presumably the awardee did not commit to performing at least 50% of the work with its own employees, or it did not demonstrate that it was capable of doing so. But GAO dismissed this aspect of the protest uh, without rendering any opinion on the awardee's subcontracting plan, uh, because the solicitation did not incorporate that clause, the limitations on subcontracting clause. Uh, it was not included as a solicitation requirement. And GEO has cited other protest decisions in which it made similar decisions. Interesting. Okay, well, it, I mean, it makes sense. If the solicitation did not include the clause, the protester cannot fault the agency for not evaluating the awardee's proposal against the clause that didn't exist, and the agency couldn't disqualify the proposal for not meeting the requirements in the non-included clause. Right, right. And that's that's a standard GAO line that we see over and over in protest decisions. Agencies have to evaluate proposals in accordance with the evaluation scheme in the solicitation. Yes, yes. Um, but the protester brought up an interesting angle uh, based on a legal precedent. Uh, in its communications with GAO, the protester argued that the clause it should have been incorporated into the contract and by inference into the solicitation by something called the Christian Doctrine. And given the context we're talking about here, I assume that is less biblical than it actually sounds right now. So what, what is that? Not a biblical doctrine. The Christian doctrine. It isn't a law. It is a legal finding from a 1963 court case, and it's actually named after the plaintiff, uh, G.L. Christian and Associates mm. versus the United States. Um, in that case, the plaintiff sought claims for costs related to a terminated construction contract. And again, in brief, the details here, the agency attempted to settle those claims in accordance with the standard termination for convenience of the government clause. Um, and that clause states that the contractor is able to file for some costs related to the contract that's terminated, but not everything that, in this case, the contractor was claiming. But uh, GL Christian noted that this termination for convenience clause was not included in the contract. Oh. So the agency... Uh, technically did not terminate for convenience of the government, but was actually in breach of contract. And therefore, it was on the hook to pay damages, including the contractor's anticipated profits. Mm. Um, but the court, unfortunately for the contractor, held that the standard clauses established by regulations may be considered as being in every federal contract, because the FAR is the law mandatory clauses are incorporated into a government contract by operation of law. Even if the clause is omitted, and as in these cases, either in error or intentionally. Mm-hmm. So in that earlier case from 1963, the, the, the court deemed the termination for convenience clause to be included in the contract. So in this newer case from just the last couple of months, the, the protester made a leap of logic and argued that the limitations on subcontracting clause should be deemed included in the solicitation because it is a mandatory clause and it will be deemed included and must be included in the resulting contract. Contractor, he's up on his law there. That's very very impressive. So what did GAO say? Well, uh, GAO said that the Christian doctrine provides for mandatory clauses to be incorporated into government contracts, but does does not provide 
that these provisions are incorporated into solicitations. Ah, uh, yes. So we drew uh-huh. the line. Um, now, interestingly, in 2005, there was a very similar case, uh, almost identical. The agency failed to include FAR 52.219-14 in the solicitation, mm-hmm. and the protester argued the awardee could not meet the requirements of this clause. Um, now, in that case, the agency argued the Christian doctrine applied to contracts, not solicitations, just as GAO did in, in this more recent case. But the Court of Federal Claims actually sustained the protest and said, quote, solicitations for government contracts are interpreted in the same manner as the contracts themselves. The same rules of construction apply. Now, ironically, the protester is not the one that brought up the Christian doctrine. The agency did. Yep. Um, but the court, <laughs> court made its point very clear um, on that one. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I, honestly, I would have thought in the first place that GEO would have made them resolicit, basically. Because, I mean, it's, mandatory clauses, mandatory, right? Regardless of whether we're talking about a solicitation or the resulting contract. So, yeah, that's it's a lot murkier case than those we discussed before. It, we had language in those enacted in various laws um, that each side was interpreting differently. But this is a difference in opinion based on other legal opinions. <laughs> maybe right, maybe right. not as solid a precedent that an agency or protester could really rely on. Right. And and the interesting thing here, uh, as we as we dug through these, one issue is that GAO and the court opinions aren't directly disagreeing yet. Mm. Um, the current case, of course, has not gone beyond uh, GAO to the courts, as far as we know, at least not yet. So we don't know okay. if there will be a resulting conflict okay, right. um, in GAO's decision. Now, in the case from 2005, that originated with a GAO protest, but GAO dismissed it as untimely, uh, saying that the protester should have challenged the omission of the limitations on some subcontracting clause before the solicitation closed and the award was made. Now, in that case, GAO did not offer any opinion about whether the awardee's proposal should have been evaluated based on the clause, mm-hmm. unlike in this newer one. So in that case, the court noted that the timeliness rule had no binding on the court, so they, they went ahead and made a decision. So it, the court reviewed the solicitation and the evaluation of proposals and found several reasons to question the awardee's ability to comply with the limitation on subcontracting. And the court ultimately concluded, as I mentioned, that the Christian doctrine does apply to solicitations, not only the resulting contract. But the court didn't overrule GAO since GAO didn't offer an opinion on the Christian doctrine. So maybe this current case could make it to the court and we'll get some actual diverging opinions on a single case. Right, right. The thread thread will be there possibly. So Ah. it depends on how far the protester wants to take the case. Obviously, they know their law. So... If they're if they're aware of that previous case, and maybe they are now that we were talking about it, they, they might be following up. Well, it does bring up a good lesson learned, no matter how the Christian doctrine is going to be interpreted. And, you know, the mandatory clauses are mandatory, right? Check, yes. check your checkboxes when you make up your solicitation before it hits the streets. And in both of those cases, it's possible to protest could have been avoided altogether by awarding the contract to a vendor able to comply with the subcontracting clause. A simple oversight like forgetting to check a box can really create a lot of unnecessary work. (laughs) Not to mention the delays and the costs and the drama associated with the protest in the first place. Right, right. I mean, literally a swipe of the pen on the checkbox would have gotten the agency the information that they needed. 
Yeah. Very, very good lessons learned. No one wants mm-hmm. unnecessary work on their desk. Right. So, yes. <laughs> so that's all we have for this week. If you are a government agency subscriber to the Virtual Acquisition Office website, you can find links to this week's headlines and the protests and court cases that we discussed for further reading on VAO on the same page where you downloaded this podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in today. We hope you will join us again for the next Daily News podcast, which will occur on February 26th. Goodbye.